All right. Well, this morning we return to Luke chapter 18. Actually, we don't turn. We've moved into Luke 18. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn there where we're going to be looking at persistent prayers pay off, but probably not in the way you think. But there are some great things in this passage because it's got a few little puzzles in it and uh, we will try to untangle them so you can see just some practical things about prayer. I think we'd all agree that prayer is really one of the most important of all the godly disciplines, uh, if not the most important. Jesus taught his disciples to pray, and in the book of Acts, when when the church is exploding and the, the Hellenistic uh, widows need somebody to take care of them, the apostles are torn. Do, do we, should we meet these physical needs, or should we pray? And focus on prayer and the ministry of the word. And they they assign people so they can do those higher priority things. Peter uh, was quickly imprisoned and they prayed and he was released. Paul writes to the churches telling them to pray at all times. To pray without ceasing. To pray in everything. And to pray for him. And so it's very clear from the scriptures, and I think we would all readily agree that prayer is really important. And it needs to be a priority in our life. The problem is, is that a lot of times Christians don't pray what they profess to believe. We can say that prayer is a priority, but we don't make it a priority. And the fact is, a healthy spiritual walk with the Lord is concurrent with the degree of prayer. There is no such thing as a vibrant walk with the Lord that doesn't include lots of prayer. They go together. And the same is true about healthy churches. Healthy churches can be discovered by the volume of prayers being offered up to the glory of God. If you don't have uh, any prayer going on in your life at all, then you're spiritually dead, surely. It's like breathing. When somebody quits breathing, they're dead. And when somebody quits praying, they're dead. And even if you're praying a little, then you're kind of in ICU, spiritually speaking. And the same is true of a church. A church that just sees very little need to pray is really a church that's saying, we don't have faith in God. We don't believe his word. We don't want to honor him. We don't want to love him. And so prayer is very critical. But there is an alarming lack of prayer in churches. And along with that, a great ignorance of what prayer is, what it is not, how to pray, and why we should pray, and how prayer works. There is people, and I've just noticed this, and I I hear people saying things that are really superstitious about prayer. They, they They are not just kind of a misunderstanding. They're just not even anywhere to be found in the scriptures. And these kind of mystical, superstitious Thoughts about prayer, for some reason, keep getting handed down from one generation to the next. And so we need to step back and we need to look at what the scriptures say so that when we pray, we pray for the right reasons in the right way, expecting the right thing, understanding why we are to pray. I'm just going to rattle off uh, 12 bullet points about prayer to just get you thinking. And if you're thinking, boy, I wish you'd talk more about that, I have. You can just get on our website and type in prayer in the Google search box and it'll bring up everything on our site and prayer articles and everything. But here we go. Let's talk about a definition of prayer. You think, well, how would you define prayer? Well, generally prayer is talking to God. But the best definition I've ever discovered is from Bingham Hunter's book, The God Who Hears, and he defines prayer in this way. Prayer is the means by which God gives us what he wants. Think about that. Prayer is the means God gives us what he wants. Prayer is not for getting what we want, but for getting God what he wants. And a lot of Christians don't understand that if we ask anything according to his will, what God wants, he hears us. God doesn't hear the prayers of the wicked. Even the prayers of Christians living in unconfessed sin 
unless it's a prayer of repentance and confession. David writes in Psalm 66, 18, if I regard wickedness in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. I think a lot of times we have sin in our life and and we kind of pretend that we're just going to like segment that part of our life off. We're not going to confess it to God. We're not going to deal with it. We're not going to be reconciled or whatever it is. And then we're going to have this vibrant prayer life. No, no. Fourthly, more people praying doesn't increase your chances of getting your prayer answered like you want. Sorry. Five, prayer at a certain time doesn't increase your chances of getting what you want. You know, they're going to have the operation at nine. Let's pray at nine. Well, pray at nine is fine, but you're not going to get your prayer. There's not a a greater chance if you pray, pray at the time. Six, prayers are always answered. They're always answered. God always answers. Yes, yes, but wait and no. Those are the answers. Those three, you will always get one. Seven, believers don't always know how to pray as they should. And so Paul tells us in Romans 8 that the Holy Spirit intercedes with groanings too deep for words according to the will of God. And this is what, this is just like, it makes our prayers just fail-proof. Even when you don't know how to pray, the Holy Spirit is there to intercede for believers so that he twists our prayers so we pray according to the will of God. Think about that. Eight, prayer is for our blessing and God's glory. It is a demonstration of our humility. It is a demonstration of our trust and faith and love for and dependence upon and obedience to God. Nine, prayer magnifies glory and praise to God. We pray, he answers, and we tell people, and more people praise him because of the answers. Ten, God may not answer your prayers in the way You wish he would, but he always answers them in a way that's best for you. 11, prayer is not a waste of time. Not praying is a waste of time. And 12, believing God is sovereign is no excuse not to pray. It's the very reason why we pray. Why would you pray to a God who wasn't sovereign? So God commands us to pray. And though God is sovereign, his sovereignty includes means to accomplish his will. There's a couple errors that people make. Usually they overamp on sovereignty to the neglect of our responsibility, or they overamp on our responsibility and ignore sovereignty. The two go together. God is absolutely sovereign, and in his sovereignty he uses means. That is, he uses what theologians call instrumentality. That is, he uses tools to accomplish his sovereign will you know let's say you you share the gospel with somebody and the person repents they believe in believe in christ and are born again now do you go away and go man i just saved somebody no what do you say well christ saved them well i thought you shared the gospel well i did and haven't you been praying for him well yeah well, so then why did you say Christ saved them if you shared the gospel and have been praying for him because the gospel and prayer are instruments or the means by which God accomplishes his will. So prayer is one of those means, one of the primary means. Prayer is not about controlling God, but about us moving ourselves into the stream of God's will. God has a perfect plan. He declares the end from the beginning. And God's not up there going, I wish somebody would pray so I'd know what to do. He knows what he's going to do. He just wants you to pray according to his will so you can get in on the blessing. And so as we come to Luke 18, it follows on the heel of Jesus' discussion of the judgment that would come upon the wicked at the end of the tribulation, the last half of chapter 17. But Jesus, having talked about the judgment of the wicked, now knows that there will be believers during the tribulation who will suffer greatly. And so he wants to encourage those who end up finding themselves in this period of great tribulation. And he wants to instruct them in prayer, prayer during times of great tribulation. And so follow along in your Bible, in your Bibles, as I read Luke 18 verses one through eight. 
we read this. Now he was telling them a parable to show them that at all times they ought to pray and not lose heart, saying, In a certain city, there was a judge who did not fear God and did not respect man. And there was a widow in that city, and she kept coming to him saying, Give me legal protection for my opponent. And for a while, he was unwilling. But afterwards, he said to himself, Even though I do not fear God nor respect man, yet because of this widow bothers me, I will give her legal protection. Otherwise, by continually coming, she will wear me out. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge said. Now, will not God bring about justice for his elect who cry to him day and night? And will he delay long over them? I tell you that he will bring about justice for them quickly. However, when the son of man comes, will he find faith on the earth? I want you to know there's some real fun stuff in there, especially that last phrase. We have these little discussions in our office where we walk around and I ask the other guy, so what do you think that means? I don't like to read the commentaries, kind of kind of decide on what I think it means. And then I read all my commentaries. But that is very, that last little sentence there is really something, isn't it? But you'll see it fits in perfect. Well, from this text, Five elements of prayer emerge to encourage us to pray and not lose heart as we do pray. The first is pray at all times. Verse 1 of 18 says, now he was telling them that them is referring to disciples. He's still having the same discussion with the disciples about the end times, the second coming. We know that, especially from verse 8 where it says so. And right at the very beginning, we are told the twofold purpose of the prayer. There's only two parables like this. They both appear in Luke where we're just told J.C. Ryle quotes an unnamed Puritan as saying, quote, the key to this parable hangs in the lock on the front door, end quote. That's so great, isn't it? You know, sometimes you read a parable and you think, what is that? But here, the key's in the front door. And notice what the text says. He was telling them a parable to show them that at all times they ought to pray and just stop there. I think we all know this, that we need to pray. David says in Psalm 55, verse 17, evening and morning and at noon, I will complain and murmur and he will hear my voice. In Psalm 62, 8, he says, trust in him at all times, O people, pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. The whole idea is that God is waiting as a refuge. Just go to him in prayer and just unload on God. Jesus said in Matthew 7, verse 7, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. Paul says in Philippians 4, 6, Be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. And then first. Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 17, he says, pray without ceasing. John, the apostle, says in 1 John 5, 14, and this is the confidence that we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Just think about those. And there are so many more we could, we could discuss. We are to pray at all times. It couldn't be any clearer. You know, when you wake up in the morning, your alarm goes off or you wake up or however that happens, do you pray? And when you get up uh, and you're, you're getting ready, thanking God for your clothes and asking him to help you with your day. And as you're eating your breakfast, are you thanking him for your food? And as you get in your car, are you asking him for travel mercies? And as you're listening to whatever you are, are you asking him and praying? And when you get to work, are you asking God to help you be a good witness, to be a good employee? And as you're working throughout the day, are you shooting up little bullets to God at all times. It's not just talking about those formal times. We might have in a quiet time where we're sitting down in the morning, you know, with our Bibles and, you know, a cup of coffee and reading and praying, but just at all times, a constant communion with God, of talking with God, of speaking with God and saying, could you help me here? Or could you bless this person? And you're stopped at a stoplight and you see an old woman say, Lord, I just pray that that woman there would come to know you if she doesn't know you. And if she does, may you bless her. You know, you're just a constant outpouring of prayer. This is, this is the Christian life. 
a constant communion with God. And not only that, not only are we to pray at all times, but Jesus also wants us to know that we shouldn't lose heart in praying. Look at verse 1 again. He was telling them the parables show them that all times they ought to pray and not lose heart. The word not lose heart literally means to grow faint or weary or to just give up, to give up. Have you ever prayed about something for a long time and God hasn't answered the prayer? Maybe you've, you're still praying and he hasn't answered the prayer. You've prayed for your child's salvation. They haven't come to the Lord. You've prayed for somebody to get healed. They haven't gotten healed. You've prayed that God would deliver you from some, you know, atrocious catastrophe and, you know, convolution in your life. All these circumstances are just weighing you down and he hasn't rescued you. He hasn't rescued you. And you look in the word of God and you're thinking, Lord, I think I'm praying according to your will. I'm saying not my will, but yours be done. And I think this is what you want. It seems like what you want. It seems like I'm in line and it doesn't come. And what's the temptation? To lose heart, to lose heart. The longer you have to endure the trial waiting for the answer, the greater the temptation to lose heart. You pray and pray and things keep getting worse and worse and it doesn't seem like God's listening and then the temptation comes. Satan begins to whisper near and says, listen, you've trusted Christ in vain. Christianity is a myth. Nobody even ever existed by the name of Jesus. You're playing into the air. And even if Jesus did exist... He obviously doesn't care about you. I mean, look how many times you've prayed. Look how you're suffering. Look look how you prayed according to his word. And here you are. You're still suffering. How could he love you? How, How could you even worship a God like that? And you know, every Christian has had to deal with temptations like that, right? It really gets down to this. Are you gonna believe God or not? Are you going to trust God or not? Are you going to live the Christian life of faith in God or not? Do not doubt. God is faithful and God will answer your prayer. Don't think that no or wait is a sign that God doesn't love you. Listen, your your child comes up to you. Mom, can I have a piece of chocolate cake? And you say, well, listen, dinner's going to be in 15 minutes. Why don't you give him the cake? You want to give him the cake? You're going to give him the cake, but not before dinner. You know, you are a coach, you have a team, and you've been working them hard all season long, and it's approaching the final. You want to give them a break. You want to, you know, cut back and, and say, you know what, take several months off. Just rest up, and we'll see you next season. But you've got to finish the season. Now's not the time for resting. You go to the doctor and the doctor says, you know what? I wish I could tell you you could eat this and do that, but you can't. It wouldn't be good for you. You're going to have to wait. Now, he wants to give you it, but it's just not the time. You have somebody faithfully serving in ministry and you want to see that person put in a place of leadership, but they need to grow. They need to be tested. They need to mature. They need to understand the word better. You can't just throw them into places of leadership beyond what they were able and have them fall into the snare and condemnation of the devil, as Paul says. God wants good things for you. He wants good things for his children and he only gives them good things. All good things come down from the father of lights and he's going to bless you. He loves you. And so when you pray and you aren't getting that answer you wish you could get, don't lose heart. Don't lose heart. Just because it may be long and coming doesn't mean it's not coming. You remember what happened when when Jesus gets a little message. Your friend, Lazarus, is dying. Your buddy. Martha and Mary have sent the messenger. He's on the verge of death. Come quickly so you can heal him. And so what's Jesus do? Hey, he delays. He loiters, plays backgammon. I don't know. He waits. He waits. Now, what do you think Martha and Mary are doing back in Bethany? Ah, where's Jesus? Did you tell him? Did you tell him how urgent it was? Did you tell him how sick he was? 
Yeah, yeah, I told him all that. Oh, no, he's, he's, he's on the verge of death. And then he dies. And then they stick him into a tomb. And then Jesus shows up several days later. You know, by that time, the King James says he stinketh. <laughs> and, and what happens when Jesus shows up? Well, Mary and Martha lay into him. If you would have been here. He wouldn't have died. If you would have come, we've seen you heal all manner of disease and sickness. We know you could have healed him. You could have healed our brother. You could have healed your friend and then he wouldn't have had to die. And now he's died because you delayed. And Jesus even wept, didn't he? And then if you were to ask them, pull Mary and Martha aside. So what do you think about this? Oh, Jesus blew it. Why? Well, he should have come. Why? Because we wanted him to. Because it was the only way for Lazarus to live. They had no idea. Jesus goes in to where Lazarus' body is, stinking, starting to decay, and restores it to perfect life and brings him out. Whoa. He puts his own power on display, the power of God on display. He he teaches Mary and Martha a lesson they will never forget that nothing, nothing is impossible with God and that God's timing is always best. And so don't doubt God. Don't lose heart. Don't lose heart. Just keep praying. He knows what's best. Third, to be persistent in prayer. Now we come to the parable. The word parable means to cast alongside. And what's odd about this parable is God, who is perfectly holy and just, is cast alongside the unjust judge, which is kind of strange. The Christian, who has a very deep and intimate relationship with God, is cast alongside the widow who has no relationship with the unjust judge at all. This parable is a parable of extreme contrast. This is one of those parables that is how much more will God type of a parable. We need to keep that in mind. Look at verse 2. Jesus was saying, in a certain city there was a judge who did not fear God and did not respect man. Just stop there. The judge is out for himself. He's not a righteous judge. He doesn't fear God. He doesn't fear man. He doesn't care what people think. He's just out for himself. He is nothing like God. Look at verse 3. And there was a widow in that city, and she kept coming to him saying, Give me legal protection for my opponent. Several things can be learned here first. The widow is poor. How do we know that? Because she can't even afford a lawyer. She goes directly to the judge. Secondly, she has no wealthy benefactor. She is alone in the world. Otherwise, that benefactor would have stepped up and got her a lawyer. Instead, she wants she goes to the judge and she wants the judge to be her lawyer and judge and protector. It is a huge request and very unorthodox, but she sees no other option. And third, we can see she is persistent and relentless in seeking help from the unjust judge, who she probably doesn't know is unjust. We're not told the details of of her case, but you can kind of read in between the lines of what it probably is. Since she doesn't have any cash, she's probably land poor. She's probably got... You know, she's one of those people who's got a cute little house in a perfect part of town that a lot of guys would like to have. And one somebody has figured out a way to scam her and take her house and land from her. But, and that's all she has. That's all she has. You remember, Jesus describes the scribes in Luke chapter 20, verse 47, as devouring widows' houses. What does that mean? They'd figure out a way to scam widows. This has always been a prime target for wicked and cowardly men to go after widows. 
This is why the law of Moses contains so many regulations to protect them. Exodus chapter 22, verses 22 through 24 says, You shall not afflict any widow or orphan. If you afflict him at all, and if he does cry to me, I will surely hear his cry. My anger will be kindled, and I will kill you with the sword, and your wives will become widows and your children fatherless. He says, listen, if you oppress a widow, I'm going to make your wife a widow and your children orphans. In Deuteronomy 27, 19, God says, Cursed is he who distorts the justice due the alien, the orphan, and the widow. And all the people shall say, Amen. So it's very clear. There's a lot more than that. So it's very likely that some jackal of a guy has now found some way to try and manipulate and steal this woman's land from her. So she comes to the judge, since she doesn't have any money, looking for legal protection. The judge, though, since... He is unjust, says, scram, get out of here. But listen, she doesn't want to take no for an answer. Look at verse four. For a while he was unwilling, but afterwards he said to himself, even though I do not fear God nor respect man, yet because uh, this widow bothers me, I will give her legal protection. Otherwise, by continually coming, she will wear me out. Notice in verse 3, she kept coming. Here in verse 4, the phrase is for a while and but afterwards and because this widow bothers me and continually coming teaches this woman is dogged. She is persistent. She has no other recourse and she's going after this judge to make sure he gives her legal protection for free. She doesn't have any money. I mean, who would do that? The request is huge. Now, I want to be very clear at this point. Because I believe many people have misunderstood this parable and taught the exact opposite of what Jesus wants this parable to teach. Remember, this is a parable of extreme contrast, a how much more so type of parable. God is nothing like the unjust judge. And his relationship with his children is nothing like the relationship between this needy widow and this unjust judge. God, unlike the unjust judge, is eager to answer the prayers of his children, wants to answer loves to answer, commands his children to come to him. He is so eager to bless you. He is so eager to answer your prayers. He's so eager to have you in his presence. He commands you to do it just in case you might be tempted not to. He wants you to be close to him, trusting him, talking to him every day, all day long. He's nothing like, nothing like the unjust judge. God loves his children. And if you are one of his children, he loves you. He loves you. Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7, verses 7 through 11. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you'll be fine. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. And he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks it will be opened. Or what man is there among you when his son asks for a loaf will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish... He will not give him a snake, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good, give good gifts to those who ask him? And the whole point is, oh, how much more so? If you're a good father and you have the means, how are you going to bless your son? And how much more? Now, think about this. If there is an extreme contrast between a good father who has means to bless his son and God, then how much more a contrast between the unjust judge and God himself, who is holy and perfectly just and loves those children who come to him needy with requests. The widow had to keep going back to the unjust judge, but in extreme contrast... God's children do not need to harass him. They don't need to beg him. God isn't up there kind of reluctantly saying, ah, it's you again. Yeah, my son died for you. What do you want? 
well, could you please, you know, get this? Or could you get me that if it's your will? I'm just asking. It's like, yeah, sleep on that bed of nails for a month. Crawl on that broken glass. Maybe I'll open my hand and throw you a few crumbs. That's not God. That's how Satan wants us to think God is. God is nothing like that. He's nothing like the unjust judge. Now, this is not to say that God doesn't want us to pray without ceasing. He does want us to pray without ceasing. And I know at this this point, you may be thinking, okay, Pastor Jack, I'm confused. Um, Let me see if I can get this right. I need to be persistent in prayer, but not because it increases my chances of getting my prayers answered. True. But I am to be persistent in prayer. Yes. But Jesus, didn't he say not to just repeat yourself in prayer? I mean, isn't there like a scripture that says don't do that? Yes. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 7, Jesus said, And when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose they will be heard for their many words. Here, Jesus is condemning the false notion that you have a better chance of getting your prayers answered if you use more verbiage. You know, 50 Hail Marys is better than 25. No, it's not. The number of words will not increase the likelihood of a favorable response from God. Persistent prayer is good, but not for those reasons. Not for those reasons. The The parable teaches persistent prayer, but not for those reasons. Unlike the unjust judge. Opposite to the unjust judge. We read all the scriptures that talk about praying at all times. So you say, well then, so why should we pray at all times and not lose heart? Let me just give you five reasons. One, prayer is a demonstration of humility, isn't it? And we all need more of that. Secondly, prayer is an act of faith in God. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. The only reason we pray is because we believe in God. We believe he exists and we believe he's listening and we believe he's going to answer. Third, prayer is an act of obedient love to God. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And he commands us to pray. So it's a way we show love to God. For prayer is the means God uses to give us what he wants for us. And five, prayer magnifies praise to God. Those are biblical reasons to pray. Do not think of God. Please do not think of God as, listen, man, I got to go there. I just got to keep pounding and pounding and pounding and saying, man, just open up, open up. Just give me what I want. And God's behind there going, oh, another person, another one of my children hassling me. It's nothing like that. It's nothing like that. Look back to the parable. Look at the end of verse five. Again, do you see where the phrase, the phrase there, wear me out? In the Greek, it's literally, give me a black eye. Think about that. A black eye. And we use that idiom today, don't we? We use, uh, uh, you know, if somebody like does something that damages their reputation, we might say, oh, that person has really given themselves a black eye. In other words, they've done something which people can see that has damaged their character. The text could be translated, and I think should be translated, even though I do not fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow bothers me, I will give her legal protection. Otherwise, by continually coming, she gives me a black eye. Now, picture it in your mind. The widow comes for legal protection and is sent away. She comes again. She stands in line with all the other people who are doing all their legal stuff like any other court of law. She waits, she waits and waits and waits and comes to the judge again. He sees her and goes, Didn't I talk to you yesterday? Yes, you need to give me legal protection. He says, I'm not giving you legal protection. Get a lawyer. I don't have the money. Goodbye. She leaves. The next day she comes back. She gets the same answer. The next day she comes back. And pretty soon people begin to recognize this needy widow and say to themselves, hey, do you see that widow over there? She has come to the judge every single day. 
for three weeks. And uh, somebody else says, yeah, and you know why? Because he's not giving her legal protection. And rumors begin to circulate and the judge realizes, uh uh-oh. They're realizing that I'm not giving this woman justice. It's harming my reputation. People are going to figure out that I'm not a, a just judge. And as soon as they figure out I'm unjust, my whole judgeship is going to be over, isn't it? I mean, it's going to be over and this woman is going to ruin my reputation. She's going to expose me for what I really am. And therefore, I'm going to give her legal protection unless by continually coming, she gives me a black eye in front of all these people. Have you ever ran into a pole? A branch? Why are you laughing? Hit your head in the cupboard, fallen on your face, giving yourself a black eye or kind of mangled your face a little bit. And everybody is going to be able to see what happened. And everybody's going to ask you, so what happened to you? And then you have to tell all those people, especially church, it's bad. There's so many people at church. And, you know, since they're Christians, they have to care for you. So they have to ask you. And then you have to tell them the embarrassing story how you hit yourself in the face with a hammer. And you may try to hide the injury and you put on extra makeup or wear sunglasses or kind of hide at home until it goes away and heals up. Listen, the unjust judge realizes his deception, his delusion is being put in jeopardy because this widow keeps coming and people see her continually being sent away and not receiving justice. So he gives her reluctantly legal protection. He is nothing like God. He says, even though I do not fear God and I respect man, yet because this widow bothers me, I will give her legal protection. Otherwise, by him continually coming, she'd give me a black eye, ruin my reputation. Now, do you see this huge difference here? God is concerned about his reputation, isn't he? Yeah. In that way, he's like the unjust judge. Both the unjust judge and God are concerned about their reputation, but for totally different antithetical reasons, because the unjust judge is concerned about maintaining his false delusion of what he really is. God, on the other hand, is interested in letting people know what he is. There is no facade. There is no deception. There is no scam. And so while both are concerned about the reputation, the unjust judge is concerned because he wants to continue to deceive. You remember in the book of Exodus when God took Moses up on the mountain and um, while he was up on the mountain, he he gave him the two tablets of stone, you know, that he carved the Ten Commandments in with his finger The people are down below. These people he has made a covenant with to be their people. He'd be their God. These are the children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that the Abrahamic covenant was spoken to over and over again through your your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And they all know this. And and all of a sudden God says this in Exodus 32, verse 7 and following, go down at once for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt. I like that. The people you have brought up he even blames moses for bringing them up here the people you have brought up from the land of egypt have corrupted themselves they have quickly turned aside from the way which i commanded them they have made for themselves a molten calf and have worshiped it and have sacrificed to it and said this is your god O israel who brought you up out of the land of egypt and the lord said to moses i have seen this people and behold they are obstinate people Now then, let me alone that my anger may burn against them, that I may destroy them, and I will make from you a great nation. The problem is, God had made promises. God had made promises, lots of promises, that these stubborn, stiff-necked people would be made into his people. And this is why Abraham or Moses prayed the way he did in light of what was spoken to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He said in Exodus 32 verses 11, O Lord, why does your anger burn against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Moses puts it back on God. You did this. 
Why should the Egyptian speak, saying, With evil intent he brought them to kill them in the mountains and destroy them off the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and change your mind about doing harm to your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants to whom you swore by yourself and said to them, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven and all this land which I have spoken, I will give to your descendants and they shall inherit it forever. So the Lord changed his mind about the harm which he said he would bring to his people. Now, let me just ask you, did God not know what he was going to do? Do you actually have a plan, fix his eternal decree and then change it and then change it back again? No. So the question is, why, why did why did this happen? Was it for God's sake or for Moses' sake and our sake? For our sake and Moses' sake. When we pray according to God's will, he hears us. And when God makes a promise, he cannot break it. He is the God who cannot lie, Paul says in Titus 1. God is not pushed around by your prayers. He's not a slave of your prayers. He's not up there in heaven going, what am I going to do? Would somebody pray and tell me? He knows what he's doing. He's infinitely wise, all knowing, sees the end from the beginning. Nothing takes him by surprise. God is like the unjust judge in that he is concerned about his reputation because he wants people to know what he's really like. The unjust judge, of course, is worried about his reputation because he doesn't want people to know what he's really like. So God, yes, doesn't want to receive a black eye either. That's why he has to fulfill his promises to you in regards to prayer. And you can bank on that. Fourth, don't fear injustice from God when you pray. Look at verse seven. And this is so encouraging. He says, now, will not God bring about justice for his elect who cry to him day and night? And will he delay along over them? Here is this great um, section. When, when it says, when they cry day and night, and will he not bring a justice? And keep in mind, he's talking about the end of the tribulation, right before Christ returns, which he's going to mention in a second. He, but the principles still apply. The whole point is this, is when those people are in the tribulation, they have suffered and suffered and suffered and suffered. And they're longing, they're aching for Christ to come back. If he would just come back and he's not coming back and things are getting worse and their world is falling apart and two-thirds of the people on the planet have been killed and the plagues and the hail and the earthquakes and the tsunamis and just all the stuff that's just ravishing the earth. Because of the judgment of God. And they're all praying out. Never stop to think. That God's not going to give us justice. He's just going to let us suffer. He's going to let us just suffer. And the wicked. Are going to get away with it. No. After he answers. Ask that question. Will he delay long over them? He answers it. Look at verse 8. I tell you that he will bring about justice. For them quickly. But who are God's elect and how is it that he brings justice for them quickly? Well, the elect are just another way of describing Christians. All true Christians, truly saved Christians. I mean truly saved in that not those who just call themselves Christians or who think they are Christians or who pretend to be Christians, but those who are actually born again believers who are new creatures in Christ, who have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation and then transformed or regenerated. Those people are God's elect. They're also called his chosen or those who are predestined by God. I know that the doctrine of predestination, it kind of makes some of you go, because you just don't quite understand. I mean, you understand the concept that before the foundation of the world, he predestined us to adoption as sons, as Paul says in Ephesians chapter one. But listen, don't ever let predestination ever hinder your prayers Hinder your evangelistic efforts to preach the gospel to the lost. Predestination is a doctrine, listen to me, that's to encourage believers only. Predestination is written to people after they believe. 
It's never a doctrine that should be applied to those who don't know Christ. There is a message for those who don't know Christ, and that is Jesus died on the cross for your sins. He was buried and rose again on the third day. And if you turn from your sins, if you place your faith in Christ and what he did on the cross, you will be saved. That's the message for an unbeliever. The message for the believer is you were chosen, predestined, before the foundation of the world. You're one of God's elect. But of course, as soon as somebody finds out about this doctrine, the first thing they want to do is apply predestination to who? Unbelievers. And then they can't make it work. Well, it's not supposed to work. There's a message to unbelievers. It's repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's a message for believers. You're the elect, chosen before the foundation of the world. We say, well, yeah, but see, I don't understand. I mean, you know, how do I know if I'm, I'm one of the elect? Well, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and I'll tell you. But yeah, but what if I'm not elect? No, there's a message for you. That message is believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. But, but how can I know? Believe and you'll know. I don't know. But if you believe, I'll know. And then once you know, God encourages you. And so Jesus is just saying, God's not going to delay long, but he will bring about quick justice for his elect during this time of incredible tribulation that's coming upon the earth. And notice verse seven also stresses persistent prayer again when it says they cry to him day and night. He will not delay long over them, but bring about justice for them quickly. And this may cause a little wonder in your mind. You're thinking, you know what? I have prayed some prayers for a long time and God has not brought justice quickly. Well, keep the context in mind. He's talking about the end of the tribulation. Keep that hole from 722 all the way down through this text. Do you remember what happened in the days of Noah? They were eating and drinking. And then what what does the text say? He says that in that day, they were, verse 27 of chapter 7, marrying, they were given in marriage until the day Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. A quick, sudden judgment. Or we could use Lot. In the days of Lot, they were eating and they were drinking. They were buying and selling. They were planning. They were building. And on the day Lot went out from Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Justice came and it came swiftly. That's what Jesus is talking about. He's, he's not saying God answers all prayers quickly. Though God is slow in bringing about judgment, he will bring it. He is long suffering, but he's not ever suffering. Peter talks about it. There's the mockers who come and say, oh, when is this coming? You know, ever since, you know, creation, people have been saying, you know, he's coming, he's coming. No, he's not coming. Everything's continued as it's always been. Uh, Do you remember the flood? That was a little hiccup in world history where things did not continue as they have always been. And then he says, yes, God is not slow about his promises. Some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not willing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. God is going to be harvesting those people that he desires to save. And then justice will come quickly. Paul describes it this way in 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 2 through 3. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. And while they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like the labor pains upon a woman and with a child, and they will not escape. In Luke chapter 21, verses 34, Jesus describes his second coming as coming suddenly like a trap. Now, maybe you've ever had a mouse in your house. Yeah, they're kind of irritating. You find little traces of mice in places where you keep your food and you don't like that. So you decide that you're going to set a trap, but by that time the mouse is gone. And so you just set it and you just put it under your sink and you forget about it. And maybe it's there for six months or eight months or a year. And then a bunch of rain comes and some mice or a mouse decides to take refuge under your house and he's crawling around in there looking for something and he finds a little crack next to a pipe and he gets up into the wall and he gets up, finds himself under your sink. And that trap has just been sitting there, right? It it hasn't caught any mice. There hasn't anything going on, but it's waiting. It's waiting to execute justice. (laughs) 
for that loiterer coming into your house and getting into your sink. You stay outside. We don't believe in house mice. We like outside mice. And it goes to get a little nibble and then down comes the steel bar and it's over and it comes quickly. Though it may be long in coming, when it comes, it comes quickly. That's what Jesus is talking about. So we don't need to fear injustice from God. He'll bring it about and he'll bring it about swiftly. And fifth and finally, live the life of faith. Look at the middle of verse 8 after Jesus promises quick justice upon the wicked at his second coming. He then asks, however, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? And this is a rhetorical question. Jesus is not looking for information. As a matter of fact, this question is designed to drive home the main two points of the parable which are, at all times we should pray and not lose heart. And you say, well, how is that? How is, however, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith in the earth? Because prayer is an act of what? Faith. Trusting God and not losing heart is an act of what? Faith. Christians pray because they believe God is going to listen and answer their prayers. And so, Living out your faith is to live out a life of prayer. Listen carefully. Prayer is the primary demonstration that you believe there's an invisible God. And you talk to him. Granted, it seems weird to people. I was just talking to one of the elders and saying, yeah, I said, uh, you know, sometimes I go for walks. And when I'm going for walks, you know, you just want to just pray but there were so many people walking i'm thinking you know what are they going to think if i'm walking around and talking you know so lord you know i've got these issues and i'm talking and they're kind of walking by going oh one of those guys who's done a little bit too much illegal substances i said maybe i should get one of those giant bluetooth things on my ear so they'll think i'm talking on the phone or something because i am talking to somebody but yeah Your prayer life is a demonstration that you have faith in God, isn't it? You know, a father calls his son from work and says, Son, when I come home, is the yard going to be mowed? What does he mean? Mow the lawn. That's what he means, right? When Jesus says, when I come back in glory, am I going to find you living by faith? Context being prayer. What is he saying? Make sure you pray and don't lose heart. So let's pray. Father, we thank you that we have learned some great truths in this text. That we should pray at all times. Because you want to hear from us. You're eager to hear from us. You love us. And love to give your children good things. That we should not lose heart when we don't get the answer we want and the way we want or the time we want knowing that your timing is perfect and you know better than we do that we should be persistent in prayer not because it's a means to twist your arm but because you love to hear from us all day long every day because you want to have a deep relationship with us that we should never fear injustice Because you are a perfectly holy and just God, you will bring justice at the second coming and it will come swiftly. And five, we need to live a life of faith and demonstrate that life by praying at all times and not losing heart. May we all do that for your glory, for your honor and for your praise. Amen.